<clears throat> if you guys don't know John, John Meyer leads our worship every Sunday so faithfully. So grateful for John. John has a birthday today. Where is John? John, did he, did he, is he here? Oh, wait, you might have to. Where'd he go? There he is. Come on, man. How old are you? Huh? You're 37. All right. Good deal. Wow. 37. Such a, such a young. Do I remember that age? Hmm. Do I remember 37? Wow. John. Oh. Wow. Well, John, it's interesting. I, I turned 40 on Friday, John. So, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, yeah, I guess we can clap for that. I guess I made it. I made it. All right. I made it. It's wild to think I was a young 28-year-old punk when I started here, right? So that was fun. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, happy birthday, John. 37. Well done. Well done. You're making us all feel old today. Maybe not. Maybe not. Okay, here we go. Well, hey, this morning, let's turn to Acts 4. Keep that open, if you would. And um, I want us to, to go back to our study on Acts. We took a break over Holy Week, and today I'd like us to go back, and we're going to continue the journey through Acts. We're going to pick back up where we left off. Uh, with David. David taught on March 13th on Acts chapter 4. And when we think of the book of the, uh, excuse me, of the book of Acts, what, what are we encouraged with? What's, what's the purpose? And I think real simply, I mean, there's a lot of things we could say, well, this is why that, that this book was written. I think real simply, we are encouraged to be witnesses of Jesus. We're encouraged to be these bold witnesses of Jesus as his church in this world, this culture that is filled with oppositions to the truth. And, and so how does a church exist, thrive, function, suffer in, in such a culture? And, and I think we learn and we see the example of that here in Acts. And no doubt today's text, as we read just a bit ago, it, we truly are encouraged to that end. And so to be witnesses of, of Christ, especially in a post-Christian culture that we live in today here in America, where even opposition is before us in certain venues and certain nooks and crannies, we find that. Even certain threats, we find that. But especially we see even more of it outside of these borders, even to where young Christian boys are on a beach and militants would, will come up to them and, and ask them to denounce Christianity and these boys will pray and not denounce Christianity but solely support Jesus but then lose their life because of it. I mean, we live in that kind of world. And so how do we as a church respond? The question is, do we shrink back and just kind of get in our holy huddle and stay silent and just kind of keep things safe, or do we have a different calling? And I think in today's text, we see that we are to be that light of the world, that bold witness that shines bright, even in the face of opposition. And so today, I want us to think about our witness. Are we bold and clear in what we believe in? 
even in the face of opposition. Or maybe today, as we look at today's text, we could pray and begin to ask the Lord, Lord, help me to be more bold. Help me to be more clear in my testimony of faith to others. Because I know all of us, as we journey through life, whether it's at work or whether it's with family members, wherever we're at, we will come across those who don't believe the same. And so how shall we respond? How shall we respond to even the public or the secular voice? And I think today we're encouraged to respond just as Peter and John does here in Acts 4. And so what's the context? Let me get you caught up a little bit. So we're in Acts 4. We're going to look at verse 13. But what has happened before in the last chapter in Acts 3 and even the beginning of chapter 4 is significant. Uh, Peter and John is going into the temple in Acts chapter 3. There is this man who is lame. He cannot walk. And he has begged at the gates of the temple um, for, for many, many years. And here we find today that he is 40 or older, and he hadn't been able to walk since he was born. And so Peter and John walk into the temple, and no doubt they have seen this guy before. But on this particular day, the scripture tells us that Peter and John fixed their gaze on this man. And in that moment, as they're communicating with him that, hey, listen, we, we don't have mere money to give you, but what I have to give you is a whole lot better. And in Jesus' name, this man is healed. Now what we believe is to happen here is that by the Holy Spirit, in that moment, Peter is given this, we would call a spiritual gift of faith, to bring healing to this man by nothing that Peter can do, but by the name of Jesus, is what Peter says. And as a result, this man stands, he begins to walk, he begins to, to jump and leap and walk around, and so what happens is people in the temple all come to Peter and John. And wouldn't you? And they're blown away by this. And so Peter takes the opportunity to testify about the power that has brought the healing to this man. And it's the power of Jesus' name. And he testifies to who Jesus is. Well, the religious crew doesn't like that. <laughs> they don't like it. Because that, that, that they're, they're on their territory. They're going to... Um, really creep in on these leaders and what they've got going on. They're going to rob the spotlight. And so the leaders don't like it. Well, Peter and John, they continued to testify even to the religious leaders. And they teach and proclaim in chapter 4, verse 2, about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, that Jesus is alive and that we can experience new life and resurrection from the dead in Jesus Christ. And then even down, what happens next is they're put in prison overnight. They're jailed. They're arrested. And the next day, they're questioned about this healing by the religious crew, the Sanhedrin. And these Jewish leaders ask them, how has this man been healed? And again, they point to Jesus by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, and they preach that in Jesus Salvation is found only in him and nowhere else. Well, the leaders don't like that. They don't like that one bit. But in today's text, I want us to see 
How do they respond to the response of Peter and John to their questioning? And that's where we pick up today. And so that's the context. We've got to know that because that's why we're at this moment in the text. And so look at verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence, the boldness of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. And so here's Peter and John. They've spent the night in prison. Uh, Now they're before these guys. They've just taught about Jesus being the only way to receive salvation. And here with Peter and John is the man who'd been healed. And so here you got these two guys that were part of this ragtag group with Jesus, right? And, And they were former fishermen. And these esteemed leaders full of scholarship, power, and rule are looking at these guys, and they recognize something about them, that they're uneducated and untrained. What does that mean? Well, these guys didn't have the formal training that the leaders had. They didn't go through uh, rabbinic school and learn that all uh, that these leaders did. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't go get their uh, doctrine of biblical studies, right? And, And so these leaders recognize that. They're stumped. They're astonished at this. How could this be that these former fishermen can teach so boldly and confident and clear? And so they're stumped. They're truly amazed at this. Isn't it interesting what the Jewish religious leaders have observed about these two guys? They also observed about Jesus. In John 7, verse 15, listen to what the Jews said about Jesus when he was here on earth. They says, how has this man, Jesus, become learned, having been, or having never been educated? Like Jesus, Peter and John, never been educated through the rabbinic training or education that these leaders had, but yet they speak boldly, authoritatively about the things of God, about the things of Christ. And so they were amazed and they begin to recognize, look at the end of verse 13, a huge verse, they begin to recognize them as having been with Jesus. It, the lights come on for them a little bit here and they start thinking, wow, these guys are similar to what Jesus was like. Wouldn't that be amazing to have that said about our, our lives? Wouldn't that be amazing to have others observe that? And these guys begin to think, wow, these guys are similar to Jesus and how he was. What an amazing testimony. We remember in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, remember what Jesus said? He said, a pupil is not above his teacher, nor, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. And so it wasn't just mere similarity that these two had, Peter and John, that they used to be like their former teacher. No, this is more. What was observed by the Jewish religious leaders was that which was created by the presence of the living Christ in these two guys. And yes, they had been with Jesus and they had been changed by Jesus. And so I think this first verse bids us to ask a question. What what do others observe 
about our own lives? What do they observe? And here with Peter and John, they observed that they had been with Jesus. Then the religious leaders see this man who has been healed standing with them as well. And what does the text say? Look at verse 14. They had nothing to say in reply. They are left speechless. They have nothing to say. They're unable to dispute the apostles' claim that Jesus' power had healed this former beggar who was lame but now can walk. They can't say anything. This is an amazing scene. I hope you can kind of get it in your head of what this may look like. Amazing. And so look what happens next in verse 15. When they had ordered them to leave the council, the council of the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they were commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So what do we see here? In verse 16, we, we see that, hey, they take Note that, yes, a noteworthy miracle has taken place. They can't deny it. In fact, all of Jerusalem knows that this was a miracle. They can't deny it. So it's interesting. In verse 16, they they seem to acknowledge some truth. But what's amazing is is look at the shift in verse 17. We, We can't deny it. But, right? But, let's keep them quiet about it. Isn't that interesting? We, we, we see the depth of depravity right here in this text. It, it, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like if, if somebody finds medicine or a pill that cures cancer. They, they found it. They found it, cures it. But then they go and they tell no one. They tell no one. That's what happens in this text. Here, here's this truth, but then they want it to be silenced. And, and so what do we see here? Obviously, with these leaders, they're not interested in truth. They're They're wrongdoing, they're wrongthinking leaders that turn a deaf ear to what is right, to what is true, a blind eye to all this mounting evidence that is before them, even with this healed man. But when people are getting benefit from a wrong, they do what these leaders do, and they're not willing to be changed. I love what John Piper says about this text in this one sentence. He says this, he says, the mind perceives reality selectively in order to justify what the heart desires. Kind of let that sink in a little bit. The mind perceives reality selectively in order to justify what the heart desires. These guys do not want to bend their heart to Jesus. 
They do not want to believe that he is the Messiah. They don't want to believe in the truth that, yes, he is who he says he is and who these guys say he is. And so their heart's desire is not to follow him, is not to make his message and that he's the one that's healed this man spread any further. Have we not all maybe done what these guys are doing? Sure we have, haven't we? It's what happens when we choose to sin. We try to justify it in our heart, but we'll kind of selectively choose what we'll do or what we won't do just so we can do it. And really what happens here with these leaders is sad. But we see it in our day. We see it in our secular world that we live in. in secularism, public, politics. Politics does this, right? And so how do they respond? How do we respond? Look what happens in verse 19 through 20. Because these leaders say, do not speak nor teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John, in verse 19, answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Wow. What do we learn about Peter and John here? They're full of great assurance. And what are they assured about? What do we apply from this text? I think real simply, they are assured that Jesus most definitely is alive, that he is Lord of the universe, that he has healed this man without a doubt, and that obeying Jesus comes before obeying any other leaders, even civil leaders. Now that's tough. The disciples though, had been given commands. They'd been given commands from Jesus to be what? To be his witnesses in Acts 1.8. We see that. To go and make disciples in Matthew 28. They could not obey both. And so the apostles obey God. And what we see right here is the only basis for civil disobedience that the Bible permits. Paul in places like Romans and in other places in Scripture were encouraged to obey our leaders that God has ordained to lead. But in this case, most definitely not. That we take the stand of truth and that we obey God. The rulers here obviously are anti-God while the apostles are truly touched with the living God. And as a result, as we learn in verse 20, they cannot stop speaking about what they have seen and about what they have heard. Even opposition and threats will not stop these disciples. Why? Because they have been changed by the living Christ. Their lives have been changed. But not only that, why does someone get to a point where they cannot stop speaking about Jesus, about what they have seen and heard? I, I think the answer is up a few verses before. Look again at verse 13. Look at the end of verse 13. What did they observe? They begin to recognize about these two as having been with Jesus. 
What can we extract from that? I think simply is this. People that meet with Jesus, that spend time with Jesus in prayer and in the Word of God, something happens to their life to where they can't stop speaking about who he is, about what they have seen, about what they have heard. And so how crucial it is, as we learn from this text, is God wants us truly to be witnesses of Christ. That we too would spend time with Jesus. That we would continue to see Christ more clearly as we are in the Word of God. That we would continue to hear what the Word of God has so that we can continue to live more and more by faith and to be these courageous, bold and clear testifiers of the truth of God, even in our world. Recently, I've been blessed to um, help out with the FCA over at uh, Hebron High School, and specifically with the basketball team because of a, a schedule conflict. And it's been a joy to get to know some of these young men and young girls. And there was a young girl who is a sophomore. She plays on the JV team, and she's just a sweet girl. And so the second week, my youngest son and I, Pierce, we, we asked her, we said, hey, listen, tell us your story. She began to tell me her story about how she has grown up in a, in a Muslim home and how a year ago she came to know Christ as her Savior. And God has changed her life even in the midst of opposition, even in her own home. The place at school has become the place where she reads her Bible, studies her Bible. She leaves her Bible in her locker because she's not allowed to at home. And, and, and she faces this opposition every day as a sophomore in high school. But I love what she said. It, it caused, I looked at my son and his mouth was dropping. But she said, but I want you to know I cannot stop speaking about Jesus. I cannot stop speaking about what I've seen and what I've heard. What I've seen and what I've heard. What an amazing testimony. And I loved it. I thought to myself, had she ever read Acts 4 verse 20? I mean, I was just, that passage was just running through my mind. I'm like, wow, this is real life stuff. This isn't just for pages. This is for living, right? That I cannot stop speaking about what I've seen and about what I've heard. And then the leaders respond. Listen to how they respond in verse 21 and 22. So Peter and John respond with saying, we, we cannot stop speaking about Christ. We're not going to obey you, but listen to what verse 21 and 22 says. It says, when they had threatened them further, these leaders, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened, for the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And so just real simply here, these Jewish re religious leaders could do nothing because Peter and John had done nothing wrong. Now, they will be able to forward because they've told them not to. And so they've given them kind of this, this reason why later they might punish them. But why won't they hear now? Well, because these guys, Peter and John, they kind of come, come like these, these heroes to some of the Jews. And then, so these Jewish leaders, they don't want to antagonize the people. They don't want to go against 
the people. Remember, these guys are PC, right? They're, they're politically correct. They're trying to play their cards right before the people. And so they let them go. They didn't want to stir up any trouble. But they let him go. And I want to show you real quickly, just with the time that we have. This is going to be, this is going to be short. But I want to show you some profound stuff here, that, that what happens here. Because when they go back, when they leave jail, li- listen to where they go to in verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions. That means to other fellow believers, to the church, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, the church did, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. I want us to see this because the church is not just individual witnesses. It's not just Peter and John. No, it is one accord, one body. And we are to encourage each other in the face of opposition. In a culture that doesn't stand for truth and believe the way that we do, we are to stand together on the truth of God. And how do we respond? We saw how Peter and John respond, and we are to respond with bold witness as well. But how do we as a church respond together? Real simply, we pray. We pray. They lift up their voices in worshipful prayer as one accord to God, and they pray. And what do they pray about? There's three things here I want you to see. They recognize first that God is sovereign. He's over the earth. He's over the sea. He's over everything. He's made it all. And they recognize that even this opposition, even these threats, even jail, even being arrested, all these things that might seem so bad and so wrong, and yes, they are, but they're part of God's sovereign plan to advance his name. And that God will take even the tough stuff of life, even opposition and threats, and he'll use it to glorify his name. Let me ask you this. Do you think Peter and John and the church, when they gather back in 23 and 24, do you think they're they're all down? Do you think they're kind of down and depressed and in the dumps? What do you think? No. No, man. I think they're jazzed. I, I think they're filled with joy. I don't think the church came around Peter and John and said, man, I'm so sorry for you guys. Man, I know that must have been tough. You know? And, and maybe they did a little bit, but, but, I, but I think they were like, wow. You, you guys stood boldly for Jesus Christ humbly for Jesus Christ. I don't think Peter and John came and made it back, uh, made it about them one bit. But they were filled with joy. And isn't that what Jesus does? It doesn't he want us to live for his glory? And at the same time, it maxes out the joy of his people. And so I think this is a joyous gathering. And they're praying together And they're saying, God, you are sovereign. You even use the tough stuff of life to advance your kingdom. Secondly, look what they pray. I want you to see this real simply. Look at verse 25. They say this, and you've got to go up to verse 24 to get who they're continually praying to. Obviously, it's the Lord. Lord, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said. And so they're praying to God. They're saying, Father, by the Holy Spirit... You inspired David 
to say this, to write this. And look what they say in verse 25. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his holy Christ. And so they, they take Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2, and what do they do here? They apply it to what? To the opposition that the Messiah will face because that's what David was looking forward to. That the Messiah would face opposition and these people, the church, recognize that's what's happening. It was part of God's sovereign plan. And look at what they say in verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together, key word, against your holy servant whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So what has happened here is they're saying, God, your scripture has been fulfilled. What you said would happen, and it's happening, God. And then in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of the threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. The second thing we see in their prayer is this, that God's plan includes believers facing opposition against the Messiah. It's part of his predestined plan from the cross all the way to the church's opposition. It was God's plan. They're against the Messiah. They'll be against those who follow him. And so they pray. They recognize this. What's amazing is I want you to look at this verse. Look at Luke 21. It'll be up on the screen, verse 12 through 15. Jesus said this about the disciples. He said this, before all these things will happen, meaning before the destruction of Jerusalem will come and fall on the city in A.D. 70 and all these things that will come down the pike. He says this, they will lay their hands on you, they will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues, to the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. That's happened, or it is happening. It will lead to an opportunity for what? Your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Is that not what happens here in Acts 4? It does. God had used their arrest as an opportunity for what? Their testimony. God wants to take every opportunity of life, the good, the bad, the ugly, you name it, for what? an opportunity to testify of him. And lastly, look at verse 29 and 30. They say, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What do they pray lastly? They say, because of these, this opposition, these threats, God grant to us boldness to speak about you. So the church doesn't shrink back. No, the church prays for more boldness in the face of threats and opposition. It never struck them for one minute to stop speaking about Jesus Christ. Not even a minute. Instead, they prayed that God would give them grace to be more bold. Not grace. or they, they weren't praying, God, send your wrath upon these people. 
No, they were praying, God, give us more grace to be more bold to speak of you. Because why? They were recognizing that God was working in their midst, even in the midst of threats and opposition. Warren Worsby says this. He says, prayer is not an escape from responsibility. It is our response to God's ability. True prayer energizes us, energizes the church for service and battle. That's what prayer does, and that's what this church did. And in verse 31, they had prayed, and the place where they had gathered together, it was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. When you read verse 31, you think about this text. You think about the day of Pentecost. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. The place was shaken, right? The Holy Spirit came, and here's another one. Another physical demonstration of the power of God as the place is shaken. And in both times, the day of Pentecost and even here in chapter 4, God gives the fullness of his Holy Spirit. In both, he releases boldness and courage for his church to speak. And here, God pours out again the Spirit to empower his church for witness. And what we see here is what's desperately needed today in the church in America and in our church. And when we say something like that, it's not to, to get us down and say, oh, we're not, we're not doing this. Not at all. I mean, this church, they weren't praying because they weren't doing it. I mean, think of Peter and John. They were faithful. They were obedient. They took their stand. This church is faithful and obedient. They're praying. But what are they praying for and why are they praying? They're praying, God, help us to continue to be bold in our witness. Why? Because... The hardness of the world is getting harder and harder. There are people dying daily, slipping into a Christless eternity. And that's why we've got to pray. We've got to pray for the church to be bold and confident and clear in what we believe about the truth of Jesus Christ, that he is alive and that he is the one who saves and salvation is found and no one else but him. The need of the world is great, and so Christ's church must be bold with the truth. And so may we, simply today, my goal, I, I tell you, all, all week, I, as I've been studying, even up to last night, I thought, Lord, I just want to encourage the church today. I, I just want to encourage. I, I hope you walk away today encouraged about your relationship with Christ, to, to grow closer to him, to meet with him daily, to see him and, and to hear from him so, so that as we read the word of God that our faith will continue to grow so that we could not stop speaking about him. Whether it's opportunities in the office at work or opportunities in the neighborhood or opportunities with family, that we would not shrink back in testifying about Jesus. But even like Marcus, uh, Mark, Marco today, excuse me, Marco, stood up and testified real simply about his story, about how Jesus has changed him. And I know some, some of you, many of you in here at work, 
You're testifying of Christ. And I want to encourage you. I pray this text encourages you, whether you're a student at school testifying of Christ or an employer or a boss or whatever, that you would continue. That this text today would just encourage you, keep going. Don't shrink back. Keep going. And keep being bold with the truth of God, no matter the circumstances. Let's pray.